0: Our subject is the Word of God in Parenting as we continue in our series on Grace Principles for Parenting. And the verse that I want to use tonight foundationally is Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. We looked last in the session on prayer and parenting and we considered the account of Elkanah, Hannah, and Samuel in 1 Samuel. We focused on how we should dedicate our children to God in prayer. That's an intentional dedication where we're not conferring grace in some way, but we are committing them to the Lord in the hopes that they'll respond to him and to the gospel and to his work and his word in their lives. We are asking God specifically to save our children. We're asking him to save our grandchildren So they would come to a knowledge of him on their own. We're also seeking the purpose of our children in prayer. So that we're not trying to get them to do what we want them to do. Or shape them to be who we want them to be from a selfish perspective. But rather who God has designed them and gifted them to be. So in that regard we are praying for their faith, their character their relationships and the people around them, because that's so important. The people that are speaking into their lives, the people that are helping them make decisions, the people that are giving opinions about different things, as well as their purity and their future. So there's nothing that we shouldn't bring before God in prayer. We ought to bring every concern and every hope and every desire for our children to God in persistent prayer. So we turn now uh, our attention to the importance of the Word of God in parenting. And the Word of God is central in parenting, but it has to be applied if it's going to be useful to us. And uh, I want to share a quote with you from John Wesley. He said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way, For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. I was in a training session this week uh, in with uh, North American Mission Board with some church planting focus that we were doing. And uh, the leader who was leading the sessions uh, and very helpful uh, for us in that regard, he made a statement that I've heard before that's not original to him, but he repeated it a couple of times. And he said, the most effective discipler uh, today is social media. And he was making the point that we are inundated by social media and we are infiltrated by social media, and it really just overtakes us in so many ways, especially as it relates to the younger generation. And if you think about your children, your grandchildren, and you evaluate how much time they're spending on social media, you realize how impactful it is, and it's not necessarily always going to be a negative thing. I'm not saying that we should just throw it out or somehow um, remove ourselves from it necessarily, but the point being is they are inundated with this stuff. That's what's shaping their mind. That's what's shaping their decisions. That's what's shaping their language. That's what's shaping their understanding of relationships. And just a little bit or piece here and there of the faith is not going to overcome that. You can't expect that you're just going to give them a little dose here and there of the Christian faith and think that it's somehow going to turn out okay. There has to be a concerted effort to shape your children, to pray for your children, and to disciple your children so that they're not being discipled more so by the world. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says, fathers don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. That verse indicates to us that we are to take an active role to teach and to be an example for our children. Fathers in particular have a responsibility. If there's a father in the home, if you're a father, you have a particular responsibility to be the lead in that. And the scripture says that we are to bring them up. It's interesting, this was originally used to speak of bodily nourishment. But the word came to be used for the nurture of the body, the mind, and the soul. So the form suggests development by care and by pains. This is not something that just happens. It is something that is intentional. And every child and every grandchild is being brought up in something. But the question is, are they being brought up in the training and the instruction of the Lord? Training is the same word that is used as discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. It has the idea of training through corrective discipline. So once again, this is not happenstance. This is intentional shaping. This is intentional correction. This is intentional discipline as it's needed. And then instruction is the idea of teaching. That would be the imparting of content. That's the teaching so that they understand why it is that you're asking them to do what they're doing. Both training and instruction are used to describe the purpose of the scriptures. So we make the connection here, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the word is used here, doctrine or teaching, and then training in righteousness, and then also correcting. So we have the overlap of these same concepts that are being taught in Ephesians chapter six and verse four. And then first Corinthians 10 and verse 11 says, these things happen to them As examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Parents are to raise children in the Word of God. We learned very early on in this particular series that the family from the beginning of creation has played a central role in the work of God on the earth. In fact, we would say that family is a foundational building block of society. And we've got a lot of problems in society. We have all sorts of issues that we could spend the rest of the time on uh, this evening talking about those different problems and different societal ills and the solutions that might be available for them. But ultimately, almost all of those problems come back to a family issue And certainly all of those problems are rooted in spiritual issues. And even if you think about the basic breakdown of the family, I saw a statistic on social media earlier about the number of children that are born in Europe that have married parents, that actually have a stable home that they're born into. And the countries vary as far as what those numbers are, but it's shockingly low the number of children that are actually born into an intact home where there's a mother and there's a father and there's some semblance of a family structure. And of course that ultimately has an impact on society. We're seeing that today in our society as well to where the nuclear family as we would refer to it, this foundational building block is absent for many people and for many children. And in most Christian homes, it's not so much that parents do not desire to help their children understand God or that they don't want their children to follow in the word, but rather it's finding time to do it because everything else is competing. And listen, you can be engaged in a lot of things that are they're good things. They're not inherently evil. But if those good things overtake the main thing, you're going to see the effects of it eventually. It's almost impossible to overcome. And what we want to do is not only teach them the information, but help them know how to go about it and how to apply it to their lives. So what I want to do in the time that we have together is I want to suggest some ways that we can implement the Word of God in parenting in a way that can help us really guide our children in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. First of all, the Word of God shapes the culture of parenting. The Word of God shapes the culture of parenting. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14 and 15, leading up to the scripture I read just a moment ago, he said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom wisdom. For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Somebody defined family uh, tradition, uh, and I'm not talking about like Cephas kind of family tradition here. I'm talking about a healthy spiritual uh, family tradition or culture um, as an aggregate of attitudes, ideals, ideas, and the environment that a person inherits from their parents. So, it's kind of the comprehensive aggregate of how you operate your home and the things that you value, the things that you implement, the things that you teach, the things that you chase after. That's what shapes the culture. And the University of Virginia did a study a few years back and identified four types of family cultures that are common in America. Now, I think these are interesting, they're not definitive. Uh, Certainly not scriptural, but they're interesting to kind of think through and process these different types of family cultures. And they identified faithful family culture, which is families who take their cues from church or religious communities, and then engaged progressive family culture, meaning these families are all about personal responsibility and personal freedom. They don't have the spiritual mooring, so they're not necessarily anchored to anything. What they're anchored to is progressive values and uh, freedoms and responsibilities and kind of people finding their own way doing what they want to do. The third type of culture that they identified is a detached family culture, meaning that everyone does their own thing and the family doesn't spend a lot of time together. And then fourth the American dreamer family culture, focused on abilities and opportunities of individual family members, meaning that everything about that family is about success. Everything about that family is about opportunity. Everything about that family is whatever it is that they're chasing after or the dreams that they have for themselves and for their children. Now, those are very prominent cultures that you find in family units. You find people that are faithful. They love the Lord. They want to do right. They're doing their best to shape their kids. The Word of God is important. The worship is important. The engagement in the church is important. And that's a certain type of culture. Then you find people that they might even attend church where all those things are important, but they're much more progressive. And everybody's just kind of. Chasing after their own freedoms, and you know, they just let your kids do whatever they want to do. They can be who they want to be, and regardless of how that turns out. I see a lot of detached families. That's the third type that the study showed, meaning that it's like ships passing in the night. Uh, people are just doing their own schedule, they're on their own agenda, and there's not a lot of cohes- cohesiveness within the family. And then, of course, the dreamer culture, the family uh, American dreamer culture is huge because there are no telling how much money spent on uh, various sports and activities and academics and other things, and these are the most valuable thing in those homes. If the culture of a home is shaped by Jesus and by the Word of God, it will have an atmosphere of love, openness, forgiveness, and honesty. Each member of the family will be made to feel that they are an important part of the family. So what are some practical ways that we can build culture in our families uh, as far as how we relate and how we talk about things and how we interact with one another to provide an environment where faith values can be taken hold of, everybody in the family can be taken seriously, And we find that anchor in that mooring. Well, let me suggest just a few. There's a difference between a sarcastic culture in a home and a supportive culture in a home. A sarcastic culture in a home speaks for itself. And that's not a real safe environment because you never know exactly how you're going to be responded to. If you come up with an idea or you have a thought or you got a question about something... But a supportive environment is where there is love and engagement in the family, even if we have to tell one another that we disagree or that we think something's wrong or they need to go in a different direction or whatever, there's kind of a seriousness about it. And that doesn't mean there's never sarcasm or there's never that uh, humorous element of it as far as how we interact, but for a stable culture to be in a home, there has to be some measure of seriousness about it where you can talk and engage on issues and uh, have that type of environment where you're supporting one another. I think this is a big one, Uh, the difference between a critical environment, a culture, and an encouraging culture. Uh, Hypercriticism and a drive to make kids perfectionist about whatever it is, whether it's grades or athletic performance or any other thing that they're into, is generally going to be counterproductive. If your first response to a child or to a grandchild is to be critical of that child or grandchild rather than encouraging, number one, they're going to stop telling you as much as they possibly can, and they're not going to let you in on things. You're not going to have an open environment where you're uh, able to talk with them about pretty much anything, and it's going to be where they always feel like they're not enough. If you are shaping the culture of your home in a way that there's always something wrong and there's always something critical, like they make an A, but it's a low A, so you've got something critical to say because it's not a high A, just stop. You're not helping anybody. You're not helping the kid. You're not, you're not encouraging them toward more success. You're going to build resentment eventually. So try to be an encourager as best you can. And this is true with discipline as well. If we're only using corrective discipline and we never notice when a child does something well or when they are compliant with something we want them to do, then when we're having to do the corrective discipline, their ears are not going to listen nearly as well as if we notice when they're doing things good from time to time. Uh, This one flows in with it, but performance versus faithfulness. Uh, Your kids are not valued by God according to how they perform. They are valued by God because they've been created in his image. If they're saved, they're redeemed by the blood of Christ, and they are inherently valuable to him. You do not want God dealing with you based on your performance. You want God dealing with you based on his love for you, and in response to his love for you, you want to be faithful. You see the difference? If if we're putting an ideal out there that I'm going to love you more or I'm going to respond to you better if you perform the way I want you to perform, that's a bad path to go down. If, however, we encourage them when they are faithful and they do well, then that's a good path to go down. Uh, Another one is appearance versus authenticity. And one of the uh, chief ways that you can drive your children from the faith is if you are fake about your faith. I don't know any other way to say it. They're going to see whether or not you actually believe and live what you say. And we don't want to put up an appearance and be something else, we want to be authentic. After all, Jesus had a lot of things to say about hypocrites. Hypocrisy is essentially play acting. It's putting up a front for other people about how spiritual we are when in reality we're not. It's better to be authentic, even if that authentic is a little bit troubled and it's a little bit messy and you got challenges. It's still better from a gospel standpoint to be real with your children and not present them with something that is not accurate. I think also unpredictability versus consistency builds culture. Uh, You provide stability for your children. When we talk about discipline, uh, one of the things that kids think they don't like is discipline, but they actually like it because it's structure and stability. They may not at the outset like it, But they like it because, hey, at least I know where the guidelines are. At least I know where the boundary is. At least somebody cared enough about me to tell me where the line was and where I didn't need to cross. And if there's some type of predictability and consistency in your home, then that's going to help your children as they build their lives and as you build uh, that culture. I think family culture is often characterized by unspoken things that are accepted and expected. Family is shaped by expectation of values, customs, overall family structure. Uh, Family culture is shaped by reciprocal relationships and how we treat uh, one another. And how important is family culture? Well, there was a 50-year study of Christian and non-Christian families that they conducted. They discovered that in American culture today, most young adults following Jesus Christ either came... From non Christian homes where they were converted to Christ in their teenage years through a ministry of a church, or they came from homes where they grew up in love with Jesus because mom and dad were in love with Jesus and that permeated their lives. Now, here's the distinction very few of these believers in this 50 year study came from homes where there was a spiritual nominalism, where the parents were indifferent or apathetic in their commitment to Christ. And it's sobering and thought-provoking to think that in American culture, the chances are better for a child growing up in a non-Christian home to become a Christian than a child growing up in a home that is indifferent and apathetic in their commitment to Christ. That's a wake-up call for the church because there's a whole lot of people that are living the consumer mindset about their faith. They're spectators at best. They speak the Christian language. They've got the good talk about how important it is to them. But when it comes down to it, the true culture of their home is nominal and it's not committed. And what that study showed is that you actually have a better possibility of a kid that comes from a bunch of lost people encountering the gospel and getting saved than you do a kid that comes from a nominal home actually believing it and living it for themselves. So the Word of God shapes the culture of parenting. I'd say also, secondly, the Word of God shapes the priorities of parenting. Priorities change when we have children. It's just... It just happens. You can tell people when they're about to have their first baby, your life's about to change. You don't even know what's coming. And probably that's all you need to say because they got to figure it out. And they know it. I mean, like, it makes sense. This is about to change my life here. But when they actually have the kids and they've got that responsibility and that becomes a key part of their family and their life, Then they begin to realize just how much those priorities are impacted. I read a story that uh, came from the end of uh, August of 2020. And um, the uh, golfer uh, McElroy and his wife Erica became parents to a baby girl that they call Poppy. Uh, They said she's the absolute love of our lives. Now, of course, having a baby changes everything, a fact that he acknowledged in a recent interview, and here's what he said. He said, before I had family, golf was most important. And then once you have a family, golf is definitely not the most important. It's your family. They're by far the most important. He said, I don't know. It just puts things in perspective. I love golf. I enjoy it. It's my job. Whether I played on tour or not, I'd still love the game of golf. But it's one of those things where when you have a family, all your priorities change in a good way, in a very good way. Families have been given the responsibility, entrusted with it, to teach their children the word of God. Proverbs 22 and verse 6, probably the most famous scripture that we appeal to. Uh says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Uh, that's been overstated and probably misapplied from time to time. Uh, there's a lot there in that verse in terms of uh, shaping the children according to who God made them to be and the hope that if they do move away from their faith, that they'll come back to what they know because that was the mooring that they were given. But the word train is a word That means to dedicate. And it's interesting because, in all the places that the word is found in the Old Testament, that's its meaning. So, the main idea is to inaugurate something through a service of dedication. And the idea of sacrifice often accompanied the use of the word. Training our children surely includes parents making sacrificial commitments to their children's training and to their dedication to the Lord. And the word is used of both younger children and older children, especially in the formative years. The phrase, in the way he should go, means according to his own way. So let me elaborate on that just for a moment. God has wired our children uniquely, and the most effective training for an individual child will be suited to differences in how they're wired according to their age in keeping with their abilities and somewhat consistent with their temperament. And I'm not telling you anything. If you've got more than one child, you know, you got more than one personality in the home. And sometimes they're radically different personalities. They're radically different abilities. They're, they're just different. That's just how, how it is. That's how God made us. All of us are different. Everybody in the room's different in some regard. And if we try to fit our kids or our grandkids into this mold of what we want them to be or who we are or exactly what we think they ought to be, if we're not sensitive to who God made them to be, then we might fall short of actually training them in the way that they should go. There's a passage of scripture in Ezekiel 16. It's a parable of an adulterous woman. It's a picture of Israel who became by God's mercy... The wife of Yahweh. But the wife became unfaithful through idolatry. Included in this was the sacrifice of her sons and her daughters to the heathen god Molech. And it's interesting how God refers to the children in this passage. He refers to them as the sons and daughters whom you had born to me and sacrificed them to idols, and you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols. Instead of offering their children to idols, They should have dedicated themselves to God and set different priorities for them. Now, I'm going to do an entire session on trying to help your children avoid the idolatry of the world. But I want to say just in part here, if we're not careful, our children can easily chase after the idols of the world. What are the idols that we typically think about in the modern age, especially in the Western world? Well, uh, people... Uh, possessions, prominence. I mean, there's pleasure. There's any number of things that we'll chase after. And those things can wrap you up so tightly that you have a hard time getting loose. And if your children see in you that that's what you're chasing after, you're always chasing after more because you've got to keep your appearances up. Who you're competing with, I don't know, but maybe you're competing with somebody. So you've always got to get just a little bit more and your life has to be just a little bit better. Or maybe you're chasing that experience. I see families all the time that are chasing after that next experience. They've got to have that next experience. It's that that thing that they want to do because that's the memory or that's the experience. Those things can be idolatrous for us if we're not careful. Now, I'm not saying that they're inherently idolatrous. Don't hear me say that at all. But I'm saying anything that takes priority over God or the faithfulness of your family, it becomes an idol. And we need to guard against that because time and time again in the Bible, God warns of idols and he warns us of the need to dedicate ourselves to him and to let the word of God shape our priorities in parenting. So think about it this way. All parents are have priorities for themselves and for their children. The question is are those priorities consistent with the Word of God? Truth is the seed or the content for training, love is the soil or the context in which that training should occur. Let me say that again. Truth is the seed or the content for the training. Love is the soil or the context in which training should occur. Love is essential in shaping our priorities. And the reason it's essential is because it provides the right atmosphere in which dedication, discipline, instruction, and example operate. If genuine love is present, everything else will flow out of that. And setting priorities for ourselves and for our children is an ongoing challenge for any of us. The good can easily become the enemy of the best. We can neglect our own devotional lives if we're not careful because we're running in a hundred different directions, chasing a hundred different things when there's one thing that we're neglecting. And the priorities ought to be God, family, and vocation, or whatever your purpose is that God has called you to in life, And we should remind ourselves of this continually, and we should honestly and transparently evaluate how we spend our time and how we shape our children. So what are some key priorities that we should be thinking through if you want to think about it almost like a a practical grid or an evaluation template, if you will, of our homes and our families? Well, prayer certainly should be one. We've already talked about this. We'll continue to talk about it. Um, The standards that you set uh, should be part of that for your individual and for uh, your family life. Uh, The activities that you engage in, that's important. What are you spending your time on? If you were to do an activities audit in your home and be honest about how much time you're spending doing various things, would that reflect that your priority is faithfulness to the Lord. And then direction, the priorities of direction, helping your children walk in the Lord, and the priority, finally, of perseverance because we need to not give up hope or lose hope. Uh, We need to keep moving forward, and we need to be diligent in doing that. So the Word of God shapes the priorities of parenting. And listen, I think one of the least effective things to do is to lay a guilt trip on anybody. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. He's the one that shows us areas that we need to improve upon or repent of or correct or change direction on. So my goal in saying these things to you in this session is not to lay another heavy burden on you. That's not my goal at all. My goal is for you to fix your eyes on the Lord and ask him to help you evaluate where you are in this process. And are there areas that you can grow in and strengthen in, in your walk with him and with your family? And then the word of God next shapes personal development in parenting. The word of God shapes personal development in parenting. And I always think about this two pronged, the personal development of the parent themselves, and then the personal development of the children or the grandchildren that you're influencing. We looked briefly at uh, Deuteronomy 6 early in this study, and there's an outline there of an essential program for spiritual development of both parents and children. And I want to repeat this in verse 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. We cannot pass on to our children What we do not possess ourselves. You cannot pass on to your children or your grandchildren what you do not possess yourself. If you do not have a growing relationship with God in Christ, you cannot expect that you're going to be able to pass on a growing relationship with God in Christ. It matters. And the first part of our personal development includes loving God with our minds, our emotions, and our wills. And this requires a trust relationship of dependence on the Lord. This is in response to overwhelming love from God. This is in response to superabundant grace from God. This is in response to the immensity of the patience of God for. Us and the second part of our personal development is found in verse six, and these words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. This is in response to the word of the Lord, and the next part of it is a readiness to share what God's doing in our lives. See so you see where this two-pronged piece comes together here. you've got to possess it if you're going to share it, and then you've got to be willing to share it. So let me ask it in a practical way. When was the last time, depending on age appropriateness and all that stuff, when was the last time you had a conversation with your child or your grandchildren about what God is currently doing in your life? Some of you have children and grandchildren that may not be walking with the Lord. They may be straying from the Lord. And it might just be that The opportunity for you to share with them what God is doing in your life might be encouraging to them or challenging to them for them to think about where they are with God. It's a non-threatening way. If you have those adult children maybe that are not walking with the Lord uh, or grandchildren, maybe you can just share, hey, I want to tell you what God's been doing in my life and and what this means to me. Uh, Deuteronomy goes on in verse 20 to say, when your son asks you in the future, What's the meaning of the decrees, statutes, and ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, verse 24, The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and fear the Lord our God for our prosperity always and for our preservation as it is today. Spirituality is both caught and it's taught. There is not a whole lot of point in teaching what you are not willing to practice. The greater authenticity of your personal development and your applied parenting, the greater likelihood that your children will at least listen to you, whether or not they adopt your beliefs and your behavior. Your personal development informs and influences the personal development of your children. And that includes both formal and informal teaching. Further, children will not mature as people unless they are given the freedom to grow and an opportunity to be accountable for their choices. So, this is both a uh, prescriptive uh, measure and it is also a corrective measure. If you're only engaging your children spiritually when they're knuckleheads, or they're not doing what's right, but you're not prescriptively shaping them and sharing with them things that are good and things that you see in their lives, you're going to miss that connection. But if you're doing that, you'll have the opportunity uh, to do both. Billy Graham said, the greatest legacy one can pass on to your children and grandchildren is not money or other material things accumulated in one's life but rather a legacy of character and faith. And with that, I agree wholeheartedly. And then the Word of God shapes discipline in parenting. This is the next point. The Word of God shapes discipline in parenting. It instructs believers to maintain orderly households and to keep their children under control. This has to be done in love. Discipline is more effective when it's carried out in love. Discipline is more effective when it provides a framework and security uh, for our children. Listen to what Elizabeth Elliott said. She said, freedom and discipline have come to be regarded as mutually exclusive, when in fact freedom is not at all the opposite, but the final reward of discipline. It is to be bought with a high price, not merely claimed. The professional skater and racehorse, are free to perform as they do only because they've been subjected to countless hours of grueling work, rigidly prescribed, faithfully carried out. And then Elizabeth Elliot said this, men are free to soar into space because they have willingly confined themselves in a tiny capsule designed and produced by highly trained scientists and craftsmen. Having meticulously followed instructions, and submitted themselves to rules which others defined. See, that's the the contradiction in in cultures. They will tell you that freedom has to be gained by a total lack of restraint or a total lack of framework, a total lack of, of discipline. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that freedom is actually found in that framework. It's actually realized in the midst of how God's designed us. So if you think about the word of God, kind of like, like guardrails, if you're traveling up a dangerous mountain road and it's steep off of the side and there's guardrails on that road, you've got freedom to, to drive between the guardrails as you're going up the mountain. And those guardrails are there to keep you from going over the embankment down the mountain and potentially or probably being killed. That's the way it is with God's word with his discipline for us. It's the guardrails. He lets us drive on the road in between the guardrails, but he says, if you get past that guardrail, there's danger to be had. And I think love without discipline leads to selfish, spoiled children and grandchildren, but discipline without love leads to resentment and rebellion. Let me say that again. Love without discipline leads to selfish, spoiled children and grandchildren. Discipline without love leads to rebellion and resentment. Let me take that a step further. Both over-discipline and under-discipline provoke children to anger, which we're told not to do in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, and lead to insecurity. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament consistently teaches that children are not naturally good. Proverbs 22 and verse 15 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 19 and verse 18 says, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. We instill wisdom in children by motivating them to live and to learn and to learn and to live. Colossians 3 and verse 20 and 21 says children be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers do not exasperate your children that they might not lose heart. You know what it means to exasperate your children? It means to provoke, embitter, inflame, or to harass or anger. So Colossians 3 is complementary to Ephesians chapter 6. And he's telling us that there's a way that we can do this that's actually going to be counterproductive. And I think there's some things that we should avoid in discipline. I'm going to take a whole nother session and talk about discipline, but I want to touch on it uh, right now before I'm done in this session. There's some things that we should avoid in discipline. I think we ought to avoid ridicule. And what I mean by that is when the child is attacked and their confidence is devastated, and it becomes an attack on who they are rather than on what they've done, that's not going to be a positive outcome. That's not a scriptural path to take. I think a parent should also avoid withdrawal because if a parent withdraws love, what does a child do? They lose a sense of security Think about how God deals with us when we do wrong. He doesn't push us away when we come to Him, He draws us near. He he doesn't try to get us off on the perimeter somewhere. He embraces us. And it's in that embrace that we want to do what is right. I'd say also in your discipline, avoid comparison. Comparing one child to another in the family or to another child in general. Why aren't you like your brother? Why aren't you like your sister? Why aren't you like that other kid in class? Because they're not them. Don't do that. They're them. They're an individual. Don't compare them to anybody. You You want to be compared to other people in your performance? Of course not. So don't do it to your children and your grandchildren. And I think you ought to avoid constant criticism in your discipline. Nagging never brought about faithfulness ever. It's just irritating. Has anybody ever been stirred to a higher level because they got nagged into it? Well, maybe there's an exception somewhere, but for the most part, no. And this is true with discipline. If you tell a child to do something and then you don't follow through with whatever the consequence was that you told them you were going to follow through with, and then you just nag them again the same way that you did the time before, what are they going to do? They're going to tune you out. They're going to say, well, she's going to keep, she's going to keep chattering at me, but she's not really going to do anything about it. He's going to keep nagging me, but I'm not, there's really not going to be any consequence here. And they figure that out very quickly. And, of course, avoid anger. We've already talked about this in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. If you lack self-control, you're teaching your children the wrong lesson. They need to know there are limits. Every one of them is going to test those limits. Every one of them will test the limits, and they will test them again. And then they'll test them again. That's part of childhood and part of growing up. But if you provide clear expectations and consequences and you hold the line and you provide it as an opportunity to teach them, and you're consistent in that, then you might get somewhere. Kenneth Boa said the Christian home has been called a laboratory for the application of biblical truth in a relationship setting. It's a training ground uh, for the impartation of values, for learning how to give and receive love, and for the development of relationships. Boa said parents are responsible to provide for their children's material needs, but they've also been entrusted with the responsibility of shaping their children's character and guiding their spiritual, psychological, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual growth. So let me summarize that. We want to holistically shape our children in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That's our goal. I close with this illustration. Uh, Family Bibles uh, rose in popularity in history in the 1700s and the 1800s. There are still some families who keep them and update them uh, prior to being able to easily get an electronic birth certificate or a marriage license or a death certificate or record keeping in general. The family Bible served as the narrative and the record keeping of a family's history. In fact, more often than not, in many cases, the family Bible was the only written record of the family. And in addition, most people's family Bibles, if you had one at your house, you would find newspaper clippings in there, of something good that one of the kids did. You'd find important letters maybe of transitional times in their lives or maybe a photo of a baptism or a baptismal certificate, and more. All these important things were kept by families. And I've already given you one country music reference tonight, and you're going to get your second. Um, I mentioned in passing Bo Cephas, and only a few of you looked like you were listening enough to hear the reference. But now I give you a Willie Nelson reference. He wrote the song Family Bible, in 1957. Yes, the great theologian Willie Nelson. But here's what he said about the the family Bible. He said, there's a family Bible on the table. Each page is worn and hard to read, but the family Bible on the table will ever be my key to memories. At the end of day, when work was over and when the evening meal was done, dad would read to us from the family Bible and we count our many blessings one by one. I can see us sitting around the table when, from the family Bible, dad would read. I can hear my mother softly singing, rock of ages, rock of ages, cleft for me. Now this old world of ours is filled with troubles. This old world would also better be if we'd found more Bibles on the tables and mother singing, rock of ages, cleft for me. I can see us sitting around the table when from the family Bible, dad would read, and I can hear my mother softly singing, rock of ages, rock of ages, cleft for me, rock of ages, rock of ages, cleft for me. I share that with you to say, even more important than a physical copy of a family Bible, which perhaps you still have, is how families use the Bible to shape their homes, how they implement the word of God to guide their homes. And here's the connection between the word and blessing. God has promised that if we will follow his word and honor him, he will bless us and we will see spiritual fruit from it. I've told you throughout this study children and grandchildren. They ultimately do what they're going to do. They make their own decisions. They go their own way. This is not a guarantee. This is not an ironclad template to say this will always be the case. But this is the path God's given us, and it's the greatest likelihood that we'll find faithfulness in ourselves and in our homes if we're following after the word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight that we have your word to guide us. We need it uh, because we uh, have so many things that we don't know that we need wisdom on. We need direction. We need guidance. And so, Lord, you've given us your word. You are the God who is the self-revealing God, and we're grateful for that, that we know what we know because you have made yourself known. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful in our homes. I pray you would encourage every parent and grandparent here tonight. Maybe just our assignment this week would be to, to share with one of our children or our grandchildren what you're doing in our lives right now and that that would be a testimony to them. Even if we have little children that are, are still in those formative years, that we just sit them down and say, let's talk about God. Let me tell you what God is doing in my life and what he can do in yours. And I pray that our children would sense the, the value that you have for them and the love that we have for them as well. I pray for every parent, every grandparent, every child that is represented in the reach of this church. Help us to be faithful, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.